The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. We're headed to Broadway for Robin's 2002 comedy special. He commands the stage in baggy lounge pants and a Southwestern-style button-up. There are about 12 plastic water bottles at the ready. He'll gulp from them throughout his sweaty set. An image of one of his eyes on a television screen hovers over the affair. He's instantly drawn to a lady in the front row with a hot pink pixie haircut. Thank you! Oh, yes! Oh, yes, my little salmon-headed friend! The audience greets Robin with a standing ovation before he's even told a joke. Thank you for the standing ovation. You made the orgasm up front. Let's have a cigarette. Let's relax. We're here in New York fucking... They're in for a wild evening, far from Robin's typically machine-gun-style focused routines. Obviously, this is not going to be your normal night of theater. (laughs) This will be Shakespeare with a strap-on. So that's the way you like it. He hasn't done a full stand-up set since the 1980s because he's been focused on his film career. It's an all-over-the-place showing for Robin that reveals a scattered frame of mind. Welcome back to Knowing, Robin Williams from Macmillan Podcasts. I'm your host, Christy Westgard. And I'm Dave Itzkoff. I'm a New York Times culture reporter, and I'm the author of a biography on Robin Williams called Robin. Before we go into Robin's story, I want to address some technical issues we had with our fourth episode. It's all fixed now, but if you have an earlier downloaded version of the episode, please be sure to re-download it so that you aren't missing any part of Robin's story. And if you have any other concerns, please email us at knowing at macmillan.com. We'd love to learn from you and open a conversation. So we left off with Robin finally showing that he can carry a film with Good Morning Vietnam. He follows that success with Dead Poets Society and Aladdin, but none would get him an Academy Award. He uses comedy to fight homelessness with comic relief and delivers his best stand-up set in An Evening at the Met. He and Valerie get a divorce, and he marries Marsha and becomes the proud father of Zelda Ray and Cody Allen. Soon, he'd become a proud nanny, too. No. Euphigenia Doubtfire. Papa's got a brand new bed. Mrs. Doubtfire exists certainly in part because of Marsha and the fact that Robin is married to her and that she is actively seeking out material for him and trying to find projects that she thinks are going to be good for him. And so Marsha didn't necessarily see him as somebody who had to keep doing these broad comedies and she saw in him the potential to do more kind of character-driven pieces, more 
dramatic roles. That was the the trajectory that she saw him on. Soon, Marsha would have even more oversight of his career. She and Robin created a production company called Blue Wolf. It gave Marsha formal control over Robin's work and let her protect him from bad projects, which he normally picked for himself. Mrs. Doubtfire was the first film the husband and wife team pursued. I first started doing the voice was very much like that. <laughs> like Julia Child, and I realized that would scare even a hyperactive child. Despite the outlandish premise of Robin dressing up as a somewhat elderly Scottish nanny, the film had heart. Robin channeled his experience with divorce and mixed families into the film. When he's supposed to be going to court and testifying uh, so that he can at least get some custody of his children and there's a portion where he's supposed to come down much harder on the mother who's played by Sally Field and Robin deleted all this dialogue that he felt was just sort of too harsh to that character that he felt like the father would go in and make a case for himself but wouldn't then turn around and bash the mother just so that he can win a few points. That felt wrong to him. So that got excised. And certainly a very important detail for both Robin and Marsha was the way that the movie ended. That, of course, the studio executives wanted the sort of the big happy ending where everybody gets reunited at the end and the mother and father either don't go through with the divorce or get remarried or whatever it takes to uh, bring them back together, and and Robin and Marsha fought really hard against that. They really thought that the more honest thing to do was to to have them separate. When Robin's scheme is revealed and he has to testify in court, he's originally scripted to say, I beg of you, please, don't take them away from me. It was Robin who added the line, they need me as much as I need them. The film was released in 1993, the day before Thanksgiving. It didn't satisfy critics, but that didn't matter. It hit all of the criteria Robin's movie-going fans had come to expect from one of his movies and raked in nearly $220 million in its first run. 20th Century Fox sent Robin a check for $2 million in royalties. A few weeks later, he got another check, this time for $8 million. From the outside looking in, he would seem like somebody who has accomplished pretty much everything. But as we know about Robin, that he not only sees the success, but he is always looking for uh, the loophole or the downside or the unraveling of it. And so by ascending to this kind of a height, he's also still waiting for that other shoe to drop, for it to be taken away from him somehow or for something to happen where he squanders what he has accomplished. Then, on Memorial Day weekend, Robin got tragic news that put his concerns into perspective. His good friend, actor Christopher Reeve, had been in a horrible horse-riding accident. It left the man America had come to know as Superman paralyzed and on a respirator. Robin was one of the very first people to visit Reeve in the hospital after he'd had the accident. And it wasn't just a simple matter of Robin, you know, walking into Chris's room and saying, hi, how are you doing? Of course, he has to do it sort of in disguise or as a character. And so he puts on a doctor's lab coat and adopts uh, a kind of Russian or Slavic uh, accent and comes in and, uh, you know, he's making jokes about Reeve and telling him that he's going to examine him and and basically doing a a bit for him while he's in his, uh, you know, convalescence bed. And, And... 
immediately. Robin makes these renovations to his own home in San Francisco where he installs an elevator in the house that can uh, – whenever Reeve might visit, it can go up and down and, and he can you know, utilize it from a, a wheelchair or, or a mobile bed and doesn't have to uh, walk up and down stairs, that, that sort of thing. And Robin – also helps Reeve pay for a lot of the equipment that he's going to need in his daily life from now on. That's the role that we all asked Robin to play in our lives in some form or another, was take us away from whatever it is that we're experiencing in our daily lives and and make us laugh about something, help us find some joy somewhere. That's what we turn to you for. That's what we're looking to you to do. And it wasn't just Reeve who Robin was known to help partially support. Remember that while he was making his own way into Hollywood, he often relied on the goodwill of others to make ends meet. So when he finally made it, he passed that forward. I spoke with comedian Margaret Cho, who performed in the same clubs as Robin as an up-and-coming comic. She had similar stories to share about his willingness to help. I would see him around San Francisco when I was starting off as a comedian, and um, he was the first celebrity that I ever got an autograph from. After he became famous, he would still come by the club. He would ride his bicycle over from Marin and ride in at night and do sets. Like, when he would come in the club, everybody would run down the street and the bars would empty out so that they could all come to the zoo and everybody could see him perform. What was it like performing in the same club as Robin? Um, I actually ended up having to follow him a lot. For some reason, he would always end up going before me. I don't know if that was purposeful, but it really did teach me how to be a better comedian, having to follow Robin Williams all the time. It's like, the worst thing for a comic is like, don't follow a bitter comic, but you just can't help it sometimes, and you, you don't have control over when you're going to go on. and. And so, and I think he he was always very apologetic for having to bump me from the lineup and he would have to go on, but I think it was also maybe, uh, he was just trying to make me better. And what was Robin like with the other comedians? It was a, a very weird thing when one of us, like one of the San Francisco comedians becomes famous. So I think that, I don't know, but I know that he had a lot of people who, um, he helped out financially when, um, they were struggling like other comedians. Uh, I know a lot of stories where, you know, um, like another friend of ours uh, was getting um, a divorce and uh, couldn't make those child support payments. And, you know, he, w- he would get a check in the mail, like from Robin for 10 grand, like, which is a big deal in the early 80s. You know, that's a lot of money. But there was like, you know, uh, deep pockets. Like if comics were struggling, Robin was right there. Robin felt especially obligated to do work that he'd be proud to show his children. In 1995, he played Alan Parrish in Jumanji. The story focused on facing your fears, and it became another highly lucrative film for Robin. But it hardly stretched his creative ability. He'd fallen into a typecast. The educated but sensitive man-child who's been deprived of childhood. A guy who wants to be a father, but still needs one for himself. By 1996, he was ready to step into a different sort of role. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. 
The climate was just right for an American remake of the French film Le Cage au Foul, where a conservative family and a gay family meet for their children's engagement, and hilarity ensues. Presidential elections were coming up, and Robin had become a strong liberal voice. The Birdcage released in March to appreciative reviews, but some critics felt it leaned on negative cliches of gay people. And this came as a surprise to Robin. He'd had a stock gay character in his stand-up routines from the beginning, and he loved the vibrant gay culture of San Francisco. So he thought he had leeway to make those jokes. At this point, he's 20-plus years into his performing career, and his earliest stand-up days are more than two decades behind him. Five, six, seven, and two, and three, and kick, and... Would you mind just reading the line, please? Oh, this isn't the... Oh, I'm sorry, this isn't Dan's favor. Forgive me, okay. But in that sense, the the bag of tricks has not necessarily grown that much. It's He's really reaching pretty deep now to still be playing those same kinds of characters. The notion that this isn't working quite the same way that it used to is just starting to dawn on him. Even so, The Birdcage was still a box office hit. By now, there were always scripts coming across Robin's desk. Marsha and Robin tried to balance out big studio projects with more creatively fulfilling indie films. One interesting little project came his way in 1997 a screenplay written by two fresh-faced actors named Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. The two were trying to launch their own careers and needed a big name to piggyback off of. For Robin, he found the script layered and moving, so he signed on to Goodwill Hunting, despite its smaller paycheck. She had all sorts of wonderful little idiosyncrasies. <laughs> you know, she used to fart in her sleep. <laughs> I'm sorry I shared that with you. One night it was so loud. The movie was an emotional roller coaster both on and off the set. Robin would often improvise until the cast was in hysterics. She woke herself up. This was one scene that Robin had ad-libbed that put Damon in a fit of genuine laughter. Oh Christ. Ah, but Will, she's been dead two years, and that's the shit I remember. It's wonderful stuff, you know? Little things like that. Yeah, but those are the things I miss the most. But Robin could also bring an intensity to the set, like the scene where he has to forcefully grab Damon by the throat. By the final takes, makeup had to be applied to Damon's neck to cover his raw and bloodied skin. Robin also delivered monologues just made for an Oscar nomination. I ask you about love, probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Goodwill Hunting came out at the same time as Titanic, but it held its own. It got nominated for nine Academy Awards, including one for Robin as Best Supporting Actor. On March 23, 1998, Robin waited with bated breath as the contenders for the category were named. And then... And the Oscar goes to... Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting! After three earlier losses, Robin finally had a golden idol of his own. When we come back from the break, it all goes south. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and 
producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. All of Robin's box office hits from the early to mid-90s gave him space to breathe and to play. He wasn't necessarily trying to prove himself in in that same capacity, but he was still trying to uh, stretch out and just see what, what else could he do? What other kind of characters was he capable of? What kinds of characters had he never uh, played before? And, and did he have the ability to uh, be those kinds of people too? Shortly after the high of Goodwill Hunting, there was Patch Adams, which Chicago Tribune film critic Gene Siskel ranked the worst movie of 1998. Well, I just believe there's more to being a doctor than memorizing facts about the ventricular arteries. I don't care what you think. I care about my biology test. We're not even going to see a patient. Robin's next project would be a complete 180 from the feel-good films he'd become known for. Over the next couple of years, Robin began working on what he called his triptych of evil films. It consisted of Death to Smoochie, One Hour Photo, and Insomnia. While he immersed himself in this heavy material, his personal life took a parallel turn with the death of his mother, Lori, on September 4th, 2001. And then, just a week later... On a most horrific day in American history, a well-organized group of terrorists, as yet unidentified, hijacked four U.S. airliners with a total of 266 people on board. Two of them were flown, suicide bomb fashion, into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. Against this strange new world, Robin did a little set as a tribute to Whoopi Goldberg, who'd won the Mark Twain Prize just over a month after the attacks. There, he felt the audience's hunger for a laugh. It had been several years since Robin had done a formal stand-up set, and he was ready to get back to his first love. The comedy routine that you can see sort of closest in time to the 9-11 attacks is the live set that he does the following year in 2002. Robin came onto the Broadway stage in a combative mood. And it's kind of unpleasant, I think, to watch now. It doesn't really feel like a jovial, surprising Robin Williams set. It is kind of dark. It is kind of mean-spirited. There is a fair amount of Islamophobia running through it. There is, you can clearly see he is still kind of working out, reacting to his feelings about 9-11. All throughout the Middle East, Allah Women and children in the number zero, they're coming. But some of the ways that it is being manifest, we can see it much more clearly now. We're many, many years after it. And you can't bomb the Afghanis back to the Stone Age because they'll go upgrade. Fuck. 
it, it's a little uh, striking to see. It definitely, in his body of work and among all the stand-up shows that he's done, is uh, maybe one of the more uh, troubling ones. In October of that year, Robin took a massive C-130 turboprop transport plane to Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. He was there to perform for the troops. In a nod to his Adrian Cronauer character, he greeted the soldiers with a big, whooping, good morning, Bagram. I also bring your greetings from our president, who is still learning how to speak. We're trying. He still says weird things like, a lot of our imports come from other countries. Okay, thank you. Robin would return to the front lines five times over the next several years. He seemed drawn to the maximum danger of these tours, where he could deliver the dirtiest of jokes to an audience that didn't need any sort of filter. In 2004, between these blistering desert environments, Robin headed off to the icy tundra of Winnipeg, Canada, to film The Big White, a comedic drama about a man who tries to pass off a dead body he finds as his brother to claim a $1 million insurance payout. He's often traveling with, you know, not really an entourage, but maybe it would just be himself and his assistant and his makeup artist. And he's in these far-flung locations where he really doesn't know anybody. And so they'll go to work during the day and shoot the movie, and then they finish up, and he's just kind of left to his own devices and doesn't even really know quite how to fill the time or what to do with himself. Robin spent that time picking apart his career. He was so attuned to all these kinds of metrics and measurements in terms of his own standing, how much money were the movies making and who was doing better than him and who was coming up behind him. And so certainly that was the kind of thing that he was fixating on when he was making some of these other movies, when he was traveling far and wide to make them because he had sort of nothing else to do. And so he would kind of lock into these depressive cycles of just feeling like I'm all alone, I'm far away from people I know, my career is unraveling, what am I going to do? And then uh, little by little the solution becomes uh, I'm going to drink. Things flew off the rail from there. He had been sober for, uh, you know, a solid 20 years at this point. And it just is a confluence of all these different factors and conditions in his life, that he was somebody who really kind of associated or conjoined the experience of going out every night and playing in the clubs with the sort of the after-party aspect of it and then would go out later and hang out with people and drink and party and do drugs uh, in, in that past era. Well, what the hell do you think happened this time? What brought you out? I mean, what brought me me relapse? I was up in Alaska in a place. Enough said. (laughs) That's comedian Mark Marin interviewing Robin for his podcast in 2014. Yeah, it's another planet. Oh yeah, even when I was drinking there, even the bartender went, "I heard, I thought you were sober." I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I started drinking with like the tiny little bottle of Jack Daniels, like the little ones you get in the airplane. Oh yeah, yeah. And I thought this is fine. Yeah, it's a small. And bottle. A week later, I was hiding them, you know, a big bottle of Jack Daniels, and just like, <sighs> yeah, it went quick. It, and it was, and it was just being in Alaska. Robin went on to give a candid glimpse into the cult of celebrity. I remember one audience one night, one night, years ago, when I was on stage, they were sending up kamikazes, which was vodka and lime juice. Mm-hmm. And after about the third one, I realized, you want me to get fucked up? And I said it, and they went, yeah! And you want me to crash and burn? Yeah! And I was like, oh, fuck. It was, I went, oh, I get it. Did, Did you, you do it? it? No, I finally went, good night, because I went, 
I gotta stop because you really just want to see me pass out, don't you? And they would go, fuck yeah. You know, it's that weird, you know, from hanging with Sam, that they crash and burn, that's the way to go. At this point in his career, his stardom meant nothing was off limits. And right. if you're famous, most of the time you get it for free, which is weird. It's like it's like the same thing when you get gift baskets at award shows going, I don't need this stuff, thank you. But a lot of coke go, here, dude. But there was an unspoken price to pay. Yeah, we love you. We want to see you die. We want to see you die. I don't want to get you high because it's, it's part of our advertising campaign. I got high and loaded. I guess one of the questions that we can kind of bring up is, you know, like he was sober for 20 years. Um, that's, that's such a long amount of time. How could it possibly be that he was going to slip back? What was that kind of turning point? Well, I think sobriety is different for every person and certainly, you know, how they maintain it. Uh, He acknowledged later in interviews with me and with other journalists that he felt like in that earlier period, certainly in the the Mork and Mindy era, when he did abuse drugs and alcohol and then decide to get sober – he didn't do anything in terms of treating himself or – attaching himself to any kind of program to maintain his sobriety. He just sort of made this force of will decision, like, I am not going to drink or do drugs anymore. And he was able to preserve that for quite a while, which is kind of remarkable. But that's all he did. And so it was just as easy, in a sense, to fall back into these old habits and into the kind of recurring behavior that he had never fully explored or treated in that past era. So in a lot of ways, and and he acknowledges that he felt like he'd never really dealt with the underlying behaviors of of his addiction at the time that he first quit. And so, of course, uh, all that is still kind of uh, built into his DNA and just kind of waiting to uh, lure him back into bad habits. And Robin couldn't seem to catch a break. In October of 2004, Christopher Reeve died. It had been nine years since Reeves' accident, and it looked like he was making progress. He had regained control of his index finger and his lungs. So his death was a shock. Then, a year later, Robin's mentor Richard Pryor was gone after a heart attack. Certainly his drinking was something that he could not disguise from his family, although he tried to. But certainly his children and Marsha, his wife, were very aware of what he was doing. And it's sort of a, you know, classic relapse behavior in the sense that he thinks he's doing a good job of disguising it from them or that they don't necessarily know, but that they can they can see it. On a spectacularly painful Thanksgiving dinner in 2005, Robin was too drunk to participate and had to be put to bed. And in 2006, at an AIDS charity dinner, he dropped $80,000 on a performance with Haitian rapper Wyclef Jean and another 40000 for an Armani diamond necklace he called a $40,000 coke vial. When he won the Cecil B. DeMille Award at the Golden Globes, he was sober, or at least he wasn't drunk in his acceptance speech, but he brought Marsha and the three children to that ceremony, and he cites each of them by name, and he gives a nice little uh, recitation about each of them and what he admires, how much he loves each of them. I brought my kids tonight. They're here tonight. I want to introduce Cody, the ninja poet. Cody. (laughs) Zelda. 
And the camera kind of goes across the table and shows you each one of them. And you can see it in their faces that they're trying to put on a kind of uh, almost a mask for the home audience that... We look like a normal family. Everything is great. But you, there's something in that that they, they're trying to cover up. With Marsha, I'd like to give you the uh, Croix du Coeur for living with a comedian. It's an interesting job, isn't it? <laughs> We're a tad moody. Isn't that right, Sybil? Yes! His family had enough. They issued an ultimatum, demanding that he go to a rehab facility to get clean again. Robin agreed that he needed help and started a 12-step recovery program in the summer of 2006. He had breached his trust with his family, and how was he ever going to win that back? What could he do to rebuild that? It was going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible. Yeah, I think that's actually a a really interesting distinction to be made is that when he first sobered up um, 20 years prior, this was right when Zach was born. It's not as if any of them have known Robin in his current state where he is uh, an alcoholic again. And so this is like a side of them that they've never seen before. Yeah, I mean, it was for him, it was a whole lifetime ago, and that was when he was still married to Valerie and so he had been through much more of a roller coaster in that period of his life when his career was just absolutely exploding and there were all these other extenuating circumstances and really now for the last you know 10 15 years he's been much more of the the family man with Marsha and really this somehow you know at least able to project this sense that everything is going to be stable everything is going to be fine and I'm going to keep all of us together and I'm not going to relapse into this past behavior that was a different person somehow and instead it turns out that he always was that person. Robin's relapse took a toll on their relationship and her trust in Robin and their marriage was beyond repair. They officially separated at the end of 2007. Fresh on the path of recovery with no projects in motion and no wife to come home to, Robin could finally take stock of where he stood. He'd always joked about becoming irrelevant, a relic of his better years. But now, at 56 years of age, he was seeing the manifestation of this greatest fear. And he was terrified. That's all for this episode of Knowing Robin Williams. When we come back, it's the final chapter of Robin's story. Thanks to David Skoff. Check out his book, Robin, to learn even more. And please be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If Robin had an impact on your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email at knowing at macmillan.com. I'm Christy Westgard, your host and producer. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.